Hiya. Duncan Green here, sitting at the London School of Economics on a beautiful October Friday afternoon, recording the latest uh, posts on From Poverty to Power. It's been a crazy couple of weeks. 400 wonderful students have suddenly descended on the LSE, all full of enthusiasm and anxiety and trying to get their seminars right and their courses right. And the first couple of weeks of mayhem, so I missed out on the, um, the roundup last week. It was just too busy. But things are settling down now. Uh, my activism course is up and running, and I'll talk a little bit about that in this podcast. Um, and everything's starting to return a little bit to manageable. So I'm going to give you two weeks of roundups. I better crack on because there's quite a lot to get through. So I started off with the links I liked. The links are getting thinner and thinner because Twitter is in such a mess. But there's a few things. And um, one of the things I linked to was um, the new, new number crunching on the UK aid budget, which showed that 30%, a third of what is purported to be the aid budget, is now was spent on refugee costs in the UK in 2022. So the principal country benefiting from UK aid is the UK. Uh, so this is not good. It's gonna, if, you know, if, if Labour win the election, they've got a lot to look at. And that's one of the things they need to look at. Next post. Um, one of the things I've been doing over the summer is updating How Change Happens, the book, my book. Um, it's been fascinating. Uh, it's been hard work. Um, but luckily the weather was pretty rubbish for most of the summer, so I didn't really resent it. Um, most of it was just updating the numbers, you know, recent stats, a few new references. But there are two big new chapters. Um, there's a new chapter on digital activism and the final chapter is a complete rewrite. So I, I put those up on the blog in draft, summarised them and asked people to comment. I had some very useful comments. So I'll talk you through the, those two big things. The other thing that's changed is the, the, the environment, the landscape. The first edition appeared just months before the Brexit vote and Donald Trump's election. Um, so, that, so that a lot of the chapters have a sort of meme of, I was so optimistic in 2016, things have got dark, but it's not, but it's not all hopeless. Seems to be the kind of vibe of the, a lot of the update material. Anyway, on the digital chapter, I decided that I really should not write that chapter. I can barely use a spreadsheet. So I asked my colleague at LSE, Tom Kirk, to write the digital chapter, and I really liked what he came up with. Here's his introduction. In 1967, Buffalo Springfield released For What It's Worth. It quickly became one of the most famous anti-war protest songs for a generation of Americans incensed by their country's actions in Vietnam. Yet it was inspired by a series of clashes the year before between Hollywood police and young people demonstrating against recently passed loitering laws that threatened to end the Sunset Strip's liberal nighttime economy. The memorable tune opened with the lines. Uh -huh. Hold on a second, let me just get the lines. There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there telling me I gotta beware. I think it's time we stop, children. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. These words were never far from my thoughts over the course of the early 2010s, only the word gun was replaced with mobile phone. And I was watching huge protests unfold on and offline in places and over issues that many had mistakenly written off as stagnant, unspeakable or oppressed. I also had a sense that by sharing content, changing my profile picture, signing email petitions and debating developments with friends and acquaintances in chat groups, that I was somehow part of them. 
This is despite being thousands of miles away, unfamiliar with the lives of the people on the ground, and with little in the way of certainty about what their overall goals or endgames were. This period was marked by techno-optimism. It centred around the growing belief that new information and communications technologies, ICTs, specifically the internet, were eroding old bastions of power and presenting new possibilities for those trying to create change. At the forefront were giant social media platforms owned and operated by well-known companies such as Google, Twitter and Facebook, with instantly recognisable logos and zeitgeisty mottos such as Don't Be Evil, What's Happening, Twitter, and albeit internally, Move Fast and Break Things, Facebook, now Meta. They promised new ways of connecting, sharing information and acting upon it. Writing in 2023, this optimism has largely dissipated. Elites in countries that experienced waves of protests during the 2010s have been able to return to power in different guises. Governments routinely shut down the internet. Opponents go online to hound activists and particular identities. And it is, it is increasingly difficult to verify the veracity of digital content or even who its real authors are. As people increasingly live their lives online, there is also growing pessimism that their digital footprints are making them easier to track and control across all facets of existence. Others argue that persistent digital divides, gaps between those with access to and the capabilities to benefit from ICTs, limit the potential of digitally mediated activism, making it a pastime of the privileged. And AI may accelerate these trends in the coming years. So I think that's really a lovely piece of writing. And I, I posted the full uh, chapter for people to look at. It's too late if you want to comment, sorry, but you're welcome to read it. As for my new concluding chapter, here's the rationale for a big rewrite. When this book came out in 2016, I was very reluctant to provide too much direction. I wanted activists to understand the importance of power and systems and the limits to their ability to change them, but also to show that by learning to dance with such systems, they can contribute to some of the wonderful changes going on in the world and help defend against the darker stuff. Since the book was published, I have worked with hundreds of brilliant LSE students and senior aid sector leaders to discuss and refine these ideas, and I'm now prepared to be a bit more propositional, working with people from around the world trying to bring about change in the most difficult of circumstances, I think we have some useful ideas on how to bring about intentional change. Deep breath, here goes. At which point the chapter takes readers through a sequence of exercises to explore problems and power, identify points of entry for influencing, and then analyse stakeholders and what might persuade them to support or at least stop blocking the campaign in question. See what you think. So I'm going to hopefully submit the manuscript next week and the book should be out in spring 2024, whereupon, don't worry, I will go on about it endlessly. Um, so that people will know it's come out. Uh, and it'll be open uh, access just like the first edition, which should be, uh, which should be good. Okay, next post up. <clears throat> this was by um, Cordelia Lodsdale and Gloria Sarawagi um, from the uh, Research for Health and Humanitarian Crises programs, um, which has an explicit impact mission. The research funded through the programme should improve health outcomes for people affected by humanitarian crises. So it's called R2HC, Research for Health in, in Humanitarian Crises, and it uses case studies 
to evaluate not only the outcomes and impacts of funded research, but to understand the processes, activities and experiences that shape research impact. Our focus is on whether research is used by and influences humanitarian health policymakers and practitioners. So this is really interesting and this is a topic which is just seems to be going up and up my personal radar, research for impact. How do you make sure that your research actually makes a difference rather than just sits on a shelf or on a CV? So here's five things they say they've learned about it. Um, I'm having trouble with my uh, spooling. Here we go. First one, we need to be clear what we mean by research and impact. We had R2HC's theory of change and results framework to help identify what impact we're looking for. We also had an idea of what forms impact might take. Uh, these are conceptual changes to stakeholder knowledge, capacity, instrumental, so changes to policy or practice, or enduring connectivity, changes to the existence or strength of networks and relationships. So I thought that was a nice typology there. But even when definitions and frameworks are as clear as we can get them, interviews sometimes generated information that felt hard to label. Is it impacted, for example, a junior data collector is inspired to start a PhD? Very good example. When this kind of information comes up, we would discuss not only what happened, but where something happened and who was affected. Through this, we could figure out together if this outcome was linked to the R2HC theory of change or sat outside it, and whether it was therefore meaningful impact for the case study. Some pieces of information ended up in a box marked other. These are contributing to thinking as we overhaul our approach so that we can better understand the role of unintended outcomes in overall program impact. I like that. So if something doesn't fit in your boxes, don't throw it away. Don't force it to fit in a box. Stick it in a box marked other, come back to it and rethink your framework. That makes a lot of sense. Again, dry throat. Second uh, observation, interviews can't be rigid. Both researchers and their collaborators in the humanitarian sector may have a lot of information out of the project that was not in any final report, especially if the project finished some time ago. Evaluators must be alert to new pathways in the conversation where impact can hide and not go into the conversation with too many preconceptions. Asking open questions such as tell me more or how was that received can uncover impact that was not previously documented and help us understand its nature. It's sometimes much easier to understand the overall spirit of a project and build rapport by asking someone to explain it in their own words instead of assuming you know how the research panned out. Very good. These are good, these are good comments. I really like this post. Third, third observation. Research funders must find a way to fund and support impact data collection after research grants have closed. Data collection, such as interviews with partners, stakeholders and documentary source research, relied heavily on goodwill and the quality of relationships that researchers had with their humanitarian partners. But it is a burden on most stakeholders. They must give up their time for free to contribute to research impact evaluation. So if, say, if the impact of something only becomes clear five years after the research is, is um, published, who's going to fund the work? Or are you just going to rely on goodwill? Good question. Fourth, people have different levels of comfort with talking about failure. When Cordelia did her case studies, we didn't really have much space for talking about failure. Increasingly, R2HC felt we needed somewhere to put this, 
as some researchers were openly sharing these reflections with us, so we adopted, adapted the basic template to include it. Researchers have different ways and stages of defining or coming to terms with failure. Some differentiated between failure they attributed their, to their own effort and that which was due to factors outside their control. Even when researchers were circumspect about failure, we also felt that there were obvious learning opportunities uh, from asking these questions. Failed research happens and failed uptake strategies also happen. Both are opportunities for learning. Very good. Finally, researchers whose work has impact tend to know this already. Sometimes a researcher would know very little about what happened after they published their work. We noticed some correlation. Teams that had delivered significant research impact also had a pretty good sense of the pathways their research had taken into policy and practice. They had maintained relationships and engaged policymakers and practitioners regularly and could give a helpful steer on who had used their research and how and connect us with them so we could check. From this experience, our conclusion is if you have no idea what's happened after you published, the answer might well be not much. Remaining engaged with stakeholders in policy and practice and building relationships, not only popping up on their radar when you have a new article out, is a key research impact competency. Couldn't agree more. Relationships, relationships, relationships. Next post. This one I just reposted from the Global Policy blog, which my colleague Tom Kirk runs. And I really liked it. How Local Women Mobilizers Shaped Ukraine's Invasion Response, and it's posted by Esther Brito Ruiz. The impacts of Russia's war in Ukraine have been deeply gendered, from human traffickers targeting women and children fleeing airstrikes, to the increase in gender-based violence, rising feminized poverty, and haunting testimonies of sexual violence. Yet despite these disproportionate vulnerabilities, Ukrainian women have also emerged as vital agents of resistance, as fighters, political leaders, aid providers, and more. The role that women-led civil society organizations have played in this response has been widely acknowledged by the humanitarian community, transforming and expanding their operations to lead relief operations, shape emergency governance responses, document atrocities to support prosecution efforts, and provide both direct and operational support to military engagement. But there has been less discussion of the role that individual citizens have played in shaping the response. I recently led a study on the efficacy and impact of a series of women's empowerment programmes run in the eastern provinces of Ukraine between 2018 and 2022. Throughout conversations with more than 38 providers across the country, one impact more than any other came up repeatedly how women who had participated in these programmes had emerged as significant local mobilisers in the aftermath of the 2022 invasion, guiding and advising authorities on the emergency response and social protection efforts. This was not what the programmes had initially been designed to achieve, but was a fortuitous and unexpected consequence of their design, and one that can teach humanitarian actors important lessons about the value of engaging and being led by not just local organisations, but local citizens. And then she's got a subhead which is building women-led governance structures. Over the last decade, Ukraine has worked to make its governance structures more localised, transparent and inclusive, shifting responsibility and power from the national level to the local one. 
As part of these reforms, over 15 local governments have partnered with international donors on a range of initiatives designed to make their practices and policies better meet the needs of women and girls. From police education on gender-based violence to the creation of local gender coordination councils, which bring together local gender advocates to advise on local government policies and programming and self-help groups through which groups of women work together to directly address challenges facing their communities, including childcare, food security and racial and ethnic discrimination. These programmes operate both as advisory groups seeking to review and assess the gendered implications of local government policy and as mobilisers. Many took place in, in areas that have been struggling with the effects of conflict for years, in some cases since 2014, when Russia invaded and subsequently annexed the Crimean Peninsula. It was after the full-scale invasion began in February 22 that their impact really came into full effect as the women who participated in these programmes rose up as vital local experts and community mobilisers. In the years prior to the invasion, women in these groups had connected locally with vulnerable residents and built up networks assessing their needs. Networks, relationships, there's a theme emerging this week. They established deep, situated knowledge on the demographics and differential aid requirements in their communities, helping coordinate support during the pandemic for those further at risk, including elders, the disabled and mothers with small children. When the war broke out, local governments, often small, rural and with limited means, struggled to devise rapid emergency responses in the wake of airstrikes, food shortages and energy cuts. But the women mobilisers who had been working so closely with the local community knew exactly how and where help was needed. Their networks were repurposed and became the core paths to secure provisions and communicate with service providers. For example, helping provide formula for mothers who were unable to nurse and wheelchairs for urgent mobility needs. They became prime first responders able to assess, guide and coordinate vital support. When these women became displaced themselves, some for the second time, given prior disruptions the, the Donbass region had faced for years, they utilised their training so, to support others in navigating government services and connecting with institutional support. More than that, they started creating their own groups and mobilising other women in the sites they re relocated to. Now this is interesting because we've seen exactly the same thing in the Democratic Republic of Congo where citizens protection committees that Oxfam helped set up um, you know, to, to, to strengthen the ability of citizens to negotiate with armed groups, for example. When the war reached those communities and they scattered, it was the women and men in those, in those protection committees who became the kind of kernels of new forms of social capital, new forms of social organisation in the refugee camps and the displaced communities. So it's really interesting that this thing lives on uh, in that way. So what does this mean? For humanitarian actors looking to better engage the leadership and insights of impacted communities, it offers a useful case study of how the situated knowledge and networks of local women, supported by the resources and perceived legitimacy of international humanitarian organisations, can create more resilient, tailored and effective responses. Very good piece. Next piece. A new version of the free online Make Change Happen course launched this week, last week now. Check it out. So one of the most enjoyable things I've been involved in at Oxfam in recent years is the Make Change Happen MOOC. MOOC means Massive Open Online Course. As I assume you know, if you've actually uh, been living in this century, a new version is launching this week. If you haven't already done it, let me try and persuade you to sign up or promote it to your networks. 
It first launched in 2018, it was developed with Open University and hosted on the FutureLearn website. So far, 17,000 people from 138 countries have registered for the course, although only 1,000 people have actually completed the full eight weeks. That's typical for MOOCs, sadly. A lot of people start off, but then just their time's squeezed. So we try and front load the good stuff uh, so that people, even if people don't finish, they at least get something informative and useful. There's loads of brilliant feedback on the, uh, on the first version, my favourite. I was feeling tired inside me. The course rekindled my passion for change, and that is invaluable. Thank you. Don't often get feedback that good. The aim is to support activists and changemakers work on social, political, economic and environmental justice issues with something that falls between yet another PDF about influencing and super expensive face-to-face -face training. The MOOC provides a combination of articles, frameworks, videos of changemakers and, crucially, online discussion forums and peer-to-peer -peer exchange where much of the learning happens. It draws on a lot of Oxfam influencing experience, including my book, How Change Happens, but also a bunch of external and internal training materials, some of it published, and I put some links in. And this new version is really down to a woman called Emily Gillingham in Oxfam who's been working on this on top of her day job and has a brilliant job. It has new, a whole bunch of new interviews with people from India, Peru, Kenya, Nigeria, OPT, Syria, UK and US, change makers doing their thing and talking about how they do it. New case studies all through the course, um, updated text throughout, updated images. It's very, it has a proper new edition. So uh, I do urge you to take a look, have a look at the links on the blog, take a look at the course if you haven't done it already. We've had nothing but good feedback. It's got great reviews. The star rating is like 4.8 out of 5 or something. So um, do have a look at that. Final piece of the uh, in this roundup, do our LSE activism students know it all already? So to get the brain juices of our record number of new LSE activism students, I teach a course on activism, flowing last week, we came up with an icebreaker, albeit on a very serious topic. Although the LSE has a pretty comprehensive policy on sexual harassment and sexual violence, it does not currently publish the stats on reporting or resolution of cases. And the task for the students was how could a campaign try and change that? So. They were working in groups and discussing what they would do, and the results were amazing. Um, so here's what they came up with. I basically, I, took, I skimmed the best bits from all the different groups and put it into one place. Obviously, not one, one group didn't come up with all these answers, but overall, really impressive. First, analyze the problem. Start with research. Have other universities done better, and if so, why? The LSE is too much of a monolith. Who within the LSE is responsible for deciding whether to publish the data and how? How do we find out why they haven't agreed so far? Why are so few students reporting sexual violence? So there's a whole really good sort of you know, digging into the problem before you jump into this, to what do we do? Think about messengers. Once you've determined who's making the decisions, find out who they'll listen to. Suggestions included big donors, quote, hit them where it hurts, very nice. Alums, who are also sometimes big donors. Sympathetic and activist faculty, quote, professor power. So, for example, feminist academics, gender studies departments. What narratives might have the most impact? I really like some of these. Why is a globally renowned research institution withholding data? Ouch, that's, that's, that's a good one. Carrots versus sticks. So carrots, you say to uh, the people making the decisions, you know, we are leaders, pioneers among UK universities and a world-class institution. 
We want to showcase the things we do well. So that's what they would say if they were publishing the data. Sticks is like name and shame, you're lagging behind other universities and so on. For the public campaign, do not use data, use personal testimonies. You need to decide when to go emotional and when to go rational. Another great quote. Allies. Master students like the ones I teach, they're only here for 12 months. They come and go. So what allies can you identify to make the campaign endure? Back to the donors, administrators, alums and teaching staff, they have the staying power. But you can also bargain. Why not suggest a quid pro quo with the teachers on the lecturer's strike? The students will support the lecturer's strike if you support our demands for transparency. Hmm, nice. As well as looking for insider allies and messengers, build a coalition for more public campaigning, e.g. with the network of student unions. Look for power in numbers. And nothing about us without us. Make sure you work with survivors on issues such as the use of language. And then there were loads of tactics, but some of the ones I thought were smart. Students could collect and publish the numbers themselves. That could prod the university into following suit because they wouldn't want to lose control of the narrative. Come up with practical suggestions. So the current process for reporting is way too complicated. You have to fill in forms and multiple points of con contact. Why not have a single human point of contact for each case? Race to the top. When deciding where to apply, some of the students had considered this issue but came away with the overall impression they're all not great. If you came up with a league table published with other student unions using a common methodology, they would actually have much better guidance on which were better and which were worse, and that would actually start to affect applications. Any university would want to be at or near the top of such a table. Work with existing organisations where you can, such as student unions, but be open to setting up something new. Don't just do hashtag campaigns. Think about traditional media. Basically, what do the profs read? A well-placed letter article in the Financial Times might well have more impact on management. Timing. When do you do the campaign? Freshers' week is a good time. Lots of movement among students, a chance to recruit. LSE has a new boss coming in, you know, uh, in January who might want to make his mark, try and, get a t try and get a meeting with him, that kind of thing. Positive deviance. Try and identify some those 2% of students who reported and were satisfied with the response and ask them what they would suggest. Use the law. Are there legal obligations on universities? Might they be in breach? It's pretty hard to improve on this list, I have to say. There are a couple of good uh, suggestions in the comments. Uh, Ernestine and Co suggested, what about a freedom of information request, which I hadn't thought of. I'm not sure the LSE is liable to do that, but um, certainly worth, uh, worth checking out. And the most impressive of, yeah, about of this was that these, this is a group of 20-somethings coming up with stuff which is as sophisticated as the stuff that's coming out of the Gelly influencing course I do with 50-somethings uh, in, in the UN and INGOs. So they're super bright. And actually what we're going to be doing is getting them to learn from each other and systematizing, giving names to the kind of processes they did to do this icebreaker. So just fantastic. And we've just had the second week. That was the first week. We've just had the second week and they're, they're, they're on it. They are totally on it. So a delight to be working with them. And on that happy, upbeat note, I'm going to say goodbye and have a great weekend.